welcome to Have Hope, Will Travel. I'm your host, Katie Axelson, and today we're going to have a hard conversation. We're going to talk about race. We're going to talk about racial reconciliation and how we can love our brothers and sisters of color well. Haley Lowe has graciously agreed to share her own story. This episode was recorded prior to the arrest of Ahmad's killers. That situation is addressed directly at the end of the episode. So Haley, thank you for being here, for being willing to share your story and being willing to educate us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Um, You and I have had conversations before, and so we're getting to invite our listeners into those conversations today. First of all, let's let's start here. So when we're talking about someone who is different than us and that their skin color is different, what is the appropriate terminology to use? Do you prefer black, brown, person of color, African-American? How can I be most respectful in that way? So personally, I don't have a preference. Like some people, it's a really big deal. I call myself black, but I know a lot of white people feel uncomfortable saying black, so they say African-American. I'm not really bothered by either. Um, the thing that does bother me, though, <laughs> is that when people are going to say black or African-American or whatever, and then they pause and look at you because they don't want to offend you. <laughs> sure. So just don't yeah. make it awkward. <laughs> whatever you're comfortable with, I'm fine with. Okay. Do you feel like most Black people feel that way? I don't know. I think it depends partly on where you're from, because I'm from California and a really diverse part of California. I think things like that don't bother people as much. And where I'm from, people use Black more, at least my age. Um, Older people would probably lean towards African-American. So yeah, I think it probably a person-to-person, region-to-region kind of thing. Sure. That's good to know. Is the best way to figure out what our friend's preference is just to straight up ask? Probably. (laughs) Yeah. To probably ask, but to ask with like a genuine, like, I want to honor and respect you and I don't want to say the wrong thing um, because people will tell you what they prefer. Have you found a lot of people being desiring to honor and respect you or have you found them to kind of push this topic aside both I've become more hopeful in recent years because I've found more people who their desire is to like respect and learn and just figure out like how do you approach this topic what does it look like but I've also experienced the opposite where I think it comes from an ignorance and people being unaware that white people are supposed to enter the conversation about race, but to enter it as learners instead of as experts. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. And it's not always easy for us white people. (laughs) So one of the things that you and I have talked about before is that at least I, as a white person, was taught not to see skin color and that we're all the same on the inside. Um, And you very graciously educated me on that's a dangerous narrative. Um, Can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah. um, So what you're talking about is colorblindness of people who say, oh, actually, like, I don't see color. I'm colorblind. Um, Whatever, whatever. Um, And yeah, that is uh, an incredibly dangerous narrative because for minorities, like, you grow up learning about your culture, learning that your skin color is beautiful, learning uh, that it's inherent to who you are. And like from a Christian perspective, it's part of who God created you to be and how God uniquely desires to be glorified in your life. So 
for white people or anyone really to say that like, oh, I'm colorblind, I don't see color. One, it's a lie because you do, unless you're like actually colorblind. Um, <laughs> see color, or you're really blind. Like, you know, you see color. Yeah. You person's skin color is different than yours. Mm-hmm. So it actually like devalues something that is so much an important part of who I am and who God's created me mm-hmm. to be and how I see that he has chosen to glorify himself through in this yeah. world. That's beautiful. And I, I know that culture is very, very important to you. So can you just give us a crash course in what is Black culture to you? Oh, what is Black culture to me? <laughs> That's a hard question, but a good one. So I think Black culture, specifically in America, is really unique, really beautiful, because it's rooted in slavery. Like, mm-hmm. that is, like, an intrinsic part of Black culture, is that my ancestors in my family were slaves, experienced Mm -hmm. racism. Um, And like I said, I'm from California, but my family comes from Texas and Arkansas, um, the South places where like we were slaves. Um, And then I think when you look at like black culture, the art, the music, the spirit of perseverance, the tenacity, the intelligence, all those things that came out of shackles is like incredibly beautiful. This thing that black Americans uniquely share where we know where we came from, but we also like know where we're going and we see the future. Um, Mm -hmm. And we see that even though right now we're still not where we want to be and we don't think our society is where it should be in relationship toward black people, we see where we're going. So that's, I guess, to sum it all up, that's what I would say. That's a good summary. Draw the picture for me of what you envision that future to look like. I think I envision a future where no Black person ever has to be the only person in their sphere. So like Mm -hmm. right now we're at a place where there are Black doctors and lawyers and um, people who maybe came from harder backgrounds and people who came from more privileged backgrounds. But right now, as a Black person, if you grow in success, there's going to be less people who look like you. Mm -hmm. So I think a future would be a place where Black people don't have to be the first Black person to do anything and don't have to be the only Black person. Like, if you move into a nice neighborhood and you're the only black family there, like that shouldn't be a thing. (laughs) So I think the future is a place where black people feel safe to be all that God has created them to be because they know that they're not going to be alone in doing it. And they feel that their voices are recognized and honored and valued in whatever sphere Mm -hmm. they end up. That's really good. I love that. I think that's such a beautiful picture of God's creation. When you think about that future and you think about the church, what does it look like? Do you think a a unified church, um, a mixed racial church, um, the white church and the black church being separate, but both very well respected? What's your vision there? I think it's actually all of the above. um, Okay. (laughs) Which isn't a, maybe isn't the best answer, but um, I think when I was younger, because I grew up in a really diverse city with lots of different people. And in high school, I went to a really diverse church. 
with people who looked like me, people who didn't, people who spoke different languages, people who didn't, everything combined. It was like, this is what the church in America should look like. Mm -hmm. But I think the reality is that not everyone's community looks like that. So it would be an unrealistic expectation to expect that every church in America would look like that. Um, So I think in the church and in like church congregations specifically that their congregations should actually resemble the communities that they're placed in. Mm -hmm. And if they are in a community that is um, more monocultural or I don't know, even like everyone's from a certain socioeconomic class, what does it look like to bridge the gap between different races and cultures and ethnicities um, and socioeconomic classes so that we can be unified as a church body, that we can honor the voices that aren't necessarily heard as much because in churches that have more white leadership, even if the congregation's diverse, a lot of times the influences they pull from are primarily like white churches. So like, what does it look like to honor the voices that go unheard and to walk forward unified as the body of Christ in a way that truly seeks to show how Christ is working in all these different places and churches. I like that. Do you have some examples of churches who've done that well, like specific stories? I think I have a couple churches that I can think of. One was a church that I went to in Denver that was just an incredibly diverse church, which is kind of different for Colorado because Colorado has a majority white population. But on the leadership team of that church, the pastors, the worship leaders, they had minorities who were leading and they were reaching out to lower economic communities and they wanted their church to actually look like Denver. Uh, I think another example would be the church that I grew up going to in high school and that I still go to is I've seen how they've diversified their leadership to resemble the church in probably the last like five to 10 years. And it's been beautiful. And it's not something that I think churches do perfectly, but I think it is something that is a necessity. Um, And if you want the people who go to your church or you want the community around you to actually be loved in a way that they recognize, I think you have to have leadership and voices that can actually speak to that. That's huge. How do we create space for that leadership and for those voices? It takes a posture of humility because if you really want to listen to Black voices and brown voices and all the voices that don't sound like yours, you have to actually be willing to listen and to realize Mm -hmm. that your perspective on seeing things isn't the only way of seeing things. So what I've found, because I went to a predominantly white university, and what I found going to school was that people assumed that everyone had the same perspective that they did, Mm. especially for white leaders who are leading people different than them. You have to recognize that not everyone has the same perspective as you. And even though your perspective is valid, it doesn't mean it's the only perspective and it doesn't mean that it's more valid than somebody else's. That's such a good call out. What are some perspectives that you can think of that don't get the uh, airtime that they deserve? 
It probably depends on what kind of realm you're talking about, but minorities often have an, a different understanding of self and community and culture than white people tend to. So in that, I think a perspective is lost because when something happens within, say, the Black community, for me, I empathize with it even if it's something that I haven't experienced or something that happened to someone that I don't know. Um, and I think I empathize with it and understand it because growing up, I grew up with stories of racism. When I was a kid, um, my first conversation about like racism was at age four because someone in my preschool had said something super racist to me. Um, so I think kind of the understanding of the things that happen, the things we do, especially things in the church, affect more than just the individual, but how do we impact communities, what communities' voices aren't being heard. I think kind of that whole perspective can be lost um, because I think white culture tends to be more individualistic mm -hmm. and see things only from a perspective of how does this impact the individuals and like what do people individually need instead of what does a community need and what does a specific maybe minority community need? I love that. I love the way that the Black culture and a lot of other cultures as well really value community. And I think that that's one of our shortcomings as a white community, not to, not to contrast the two, but recognize that they're very different. So can you explain to us a little bit more what you mean when you say the word community? Yeah. So I was raised in a black church, like pretty much everyone in the church was black. And that was my experience of church until I was maybe in high school. So I think what I learned through being in black church, but also growing up around black people is a sense that we're all interconnected, even if we don't know each other. Like, if I were to see another Black family in the store, I feel like I can say something to the kid that's acting. So I think it's like, there's a sense of knowing and a sense of shared pain and shared struggle, but also like shared achievement. I think it, I want to say it was at an award show. There's an actress slash I think she's a writer maybe producer her name's Issa Rae and she had a shirt on that says like I'm cheering for everybody black or mm. to that extent and I think that kind of the community aspect is like when a black person achieves something doesn't matter if you knew them doesn't matter if you have any relationship to them it feels like the entire community just like won something um mm. So there's like this connectivity with other people who look like you. And I think I've even experienced it overseas with people who aren't American at all, but just seeing another black person, whether they're from Africa or Jamaica or literally anywhere, like there's just this sense of connection because it's like, hey, like we look the same. Like you, you understand something that other people don't understand. That makes sense. I ran into another foreigner in China once that I had no idea who this guy was. I think he was European and I just waved to him excited like it was my long lost best friend because he looked like me. Yeah. So I totally understand that. 
you posted something on Instagram a couple weeks ago about a, was it a worship CD video that just made your heart happy? <laughs> Tell me about that. Yeah. So there is this worship band, I guess. Um, they're new. They're called Maverick City Music out of Atlanta. And they literally just make my heart so happy because it's a bunch of black worship leaders, um, black musicians, black and brown musicians. And, and they're just worshiping in a way that feels culturally familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, I grew up in a black church. So seeing these young artists like use their giftings in a way that is so beautiful and so full of the kingdom, but also is so full of their culture and like my culture just feels so honoring and so freeing almost because I haven't really seen that a lot. That's really cool. It was fun to get to watch that and to get to see your excitement about it because it was something that I hadn't necessarily thought about. But it made perfect sense when you talked about how excited your heart was and how familiar it felt. What do you wish, I was going to say white people, but maybe non-black people is a better way to phrase it, knew? I wish that non-black people knew, which I think some non-black people do know and probably can empathize with. But just the history and the necessity of understanding the history of black people, because what I've experienced in my life is that... A lot of times white people will try to say slavery happened 200 years ago. Like, why are we still talking about it? But if you really, really dig into the history, like all of American black culture pretty much is rooted in slavery. And whether that's black church culture or black communities or the food that black people eat, like soul food, I'm from California, so I eat a lot of sushi, (laughs) but (laughs) holidays we eat soul food. Like all of that is so rooted in slavery. Um, And when you look at the economic problems, the fact that black people still in society can feel powerless and voiceless. If you want to look at why the Black Lives Matters movement is what it is, um, it's all rooted in slavery and it's all everything stems from that. So it's both like the beauty and the pain of black culture comes from slavery. And I think you can't look at any culture, any people without understanding the history of where they come from. But I think in America, sometimes we struggle to acknowledge our own history and acknowledge how that impacts our present and the way we see things today. That's a good comment because you're right. I do think we try to brush off slavery and because while it is part of our history, it's an ugly part of our history. And so we like to erase the ugly parts. Whereas for you guys, while it's an ugly part of your history, for sure, you've embraced it and a lot of beauty has come out of that. Would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I do think that's a fair statement. And I think it's, I don't know if it's so much that we embraced it, but you can't get around it. Like if you're Mm -hmm. a black and it's not something that you can brush off. When I was in school, I had to do a genogram, which if you don't know what a genogram is, it you go back uh, in your family for four or five generations and you document different things going on in your family, whether that's addictions or divorce or really incredible things. Um, you just trace it as a family history. It's really cool. Highly recommend it. Uh, But in doing that, I like went back just a few generations and I see, you know, my last ancestors that were born into slavery. So Mm. 
that is like very much like my family history, not just our American history. So for me, if I'm digging into my history, the reality is like my ancestors were slaves. But the beauty mm-hmm. of that is a few generations down the line to see how God has taken people who were born into slavery and he's made them educators and police officers and missionaries and done really incredible things from that really terrible history. So I don't know if it's so much embracing it, but I think when there are things that are tragic and things that are unfair, Mm -hmm. you can't really ignore it. You have to figure out how do I build upon it? That's a a good point and a good differentiation. Go ahead. Oh, something you said um, I wanted to speak to a little because you were saying how we tend to ignore the ugly parts of our history. Mm -hmm. So I just got back from being overseas and One of the places I went in South Asia was incredible because I feel like they've actually taken what it means for the Lord to redeem culture and like just completely ran with it. So there's this tribal people and they like live in the hills or they used to. Um, I think they've moved more to like the villages and that kind of thing now, but they they used to be headhunters. Like they used to go out, kill the heads of their enemies, chop them off do like sacred warrior dances around the heads it was a whole uh the greatest warriors would get kind of like a tribal cloak that they would wear and that was that was very much the center of their culture was being known as headhunters and after they received the gospel they changed from saying we were headhunters but now we're heart hunters so Mm. they actually take this ugly um, where they destroyed human life and they show how the gospel has redeemed it. There are tribal dances that they used to do around like the heads of their enemies. They still do them, but now it's like as worship to God. And the cloaks that they used to put on their bravest warriors, they now put them on their greatest warriors for Christ. Wow. So I, I think that there's something that we miss in American church specifically in white churches is that like how can God take the ugly parts of history and actually like redeem them instead of just mm-hmm. moving past them or trying to pretend like they didn't happen because that actually was one of the most incredible things I experienced from this people group was like uh-huh. hey this is who we used to be and this is what God has done. And we proclaim that because there's so much beauty in seeing who Christ is and what he can do and how he's changed generations. That story makes me want to go sit and reflect with Jesus for a little bit of like, what is it <laughs> going to look like to redeem the ugly parts of my story? Where yeah. I can go from just trying to ignore it and pretend it didn't happen to going from a headhunter to a heart hunter. That is so gorgeous. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's incredible. Can I ask you a little bit more difficult question about discrimination? Sure. (laughs) Is discrimination something you've experienced? And if so, that you're willing to share, of course, what happened and what would have been better had something better happened? Thankfully, I've I've been blessed to grow up in, like I said, California, but California is a very not tolerating discrimination kind of state. Uh, So I think I'm super blessed to have grown up in California and that my experiences of like overt discrimination are very minimal whereas like other parts of the country that is not true at all like I said um my first conversation 
about race with my parents was when I was four. And it was because my best friend in preschool told me that her family didn't like black people because black people had like thrown tomatoes at their car or something. Um, but she liked us. Um, and she liked me and I was like, me being four, I thought it was a compliment. My mom was like, Hey, actually that's not a compliment and you're never going over their house. (laughs) Probably a good call that my mom made. Um, so I think I've always grown up with this awareness that people don't always like you because of your skin color or what they perceive about black people. I feel like a lot of things that I experienced weren't really overt, but it's more of like the awareness that I had. Like when I first started doing job interviews, I knew that it's a risk if I go in with natural hair because I might be perceived as being, I don't know, not even not smart enough or not qualified enough for the job. Um, And then I think just going to a mostly white university it wasn't so much discrimination that I experienced. It was more feeling like I was very unseen in mm. being a Black woman. Like, I, I feel like I was, people saw that I was capable and intelligent, but there was kind of this whole part of me that was ignored because people didn't know how to talk about it. And then sure. uh, when things started getting just kind of, not like crazy, but when the Black Lives Matters movement really took off. I think some of the things that people around me would say were hurtful, but not intended to be hurtful, just because they didn't understand the perspective that Black people who are speaking out actually had. I think overseas, it's interesting because um, you never know how people are going to react to having someone with darker skin. For some people... It's like they don't really want anything to do with me. Mm. Other people, they kind of see me as a spectacle and just want to take pictures of me all the time. That's kind of annoying. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I've been called, well, it wasn't an accident, but I was called the N-word overseas. And he just thought that people in America were called. Um, Yeah, so that was rough. I don't know. I think. I don't know that I've necessarily experienced discrimination that I know of, but I think I've experienced a lot of maybe prejudice that people either didn't realize they had or did realize they had. I don't know. Yeah. Sure. How can we raise our awareness to our own prejudices? I think it's probably being aware of the judgments that you make about people and asking yourself where that actually comes from or if that's actually true. So like we all make judgments about people, but I think asking why did I make that judgment or questioning the things that you've held as being true. If there are things you think about the Black community without ever actually experiencing the Black community or having meaningful relationships with Black people, I would question why you think the things you think. And then if you start deep diving into that, it'll open a can of worms. But I think it's a good can that needs to be opened. I would definitely agree with that. Are there any prejudices or thoughts that you've noticed tend to be common that are not actually accurate, obviously? The main prejudice I've noticed that ties into pretty much everything else is the idea that the way Black people see the world is somehow wrong. 
Mm, yeah, I think it I think it ties into everything. And ultimately it stops white people from hearing black voices because they assume that the way black people are seeing the world is wrong. They assume that wow. black expect the wrong. Or like if I experience something totally different than say a white person in the same situation, the assumption would be that I'm seeing it wrong, not that I have a different perspective on it that will bring greater understanding. How easy we like to fall into that right and wrong, black and white, and it's yeah. not. It's gray. Yeah. And I don't mean I don't mean black and white in terms of skin color at that point. I meant it as an expression. Is that an appropriate expression or is that an inappropriate expression? Um, I don't know actually. I feel like I've probably, pictured a checkerboard. Yeah, yeah I, I pictured like a checkerboard that. when I say it, and then I just said it right now and thought, oh, this could get awkward. Um, I feel like you could probably make an argument for it not being a good expression, but I feel like it's one of those things that I wouldn't die on that hill. <laughs> sure. Sure, sure. I'm gonna have to come up with a better, a better one now. Thank you for raising my awareness on that unintentionally. One thing that you said when you were talking about your college experience is that you didn't necessarily feel seen. So how can we help the world see you, Haley, and see you in terms of the Black culture? I think that's a really complicated answer. <laughs> Here's why. So on my last team, when I was overseas, I had the sweetest experience because I wasn't the only Black person. Mm-hmm. There were 11 of us and four of us were Black. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. But we all have very different stories. Um, We all connect to like our race and our cultural background because some some of us had like different cultural backgrounds as far as like not being like African-American, I guess, but being different kinds of Black from different places. So it was a really cool experience. And I felt more freedom to actually be myself because I felt like it would be very hard to stereotype me when I'm in a place with three other Black women. Mm-hmm. Different than me. So I think part of freedom for me to be myself, for other Black people to be their selves, is to have more Black people. <laughs> um, yeah. Because then the fear of being stereotyped, the fear of being misjudged, the fear of, I don't know, not being understood or your voice not carrying weight starts to fall away. Because if one of us was talking about racial injustice or prejudice. It's a different conversation when you're having it with multiple Black people there, then you're the only one who has to. Wow, yeah. I think something to be aware of if you're someone who's trying to make a safe space for Black people to be themselves, to be heard, is that it's so much easier to be heard and to feel seen when you don't have to be the only one fighting to Mm -hmm. be heard and seen. So I think that's a, a really important part. And I think another important thing is just to take a posture of understanding that white culture is a culture and that other people have a different culture. So, like, something that initially could rub somebody the wrong way might just be a cultural difference and might not be a right versus wrong kind of thing or just a different way of seeing things, a different way of doing things, a different way of speaking, a different way of interacting with the world. And I think that's important to realize because just like if you go overseas and you're put in the middle of, like, 
a different culture and you'll immediately notice the things that are so opposite your culture. And it's easy to get into a place of like, we do things right. They do things wrong, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. that's not the reality. It's like, they do things different in coming from an understanding that when all things are made new and we're all gathered around the throne, worshiping that there's supposed to be people from every uh, tongue, tribe and nation, Mm -hmm. you will see the implicit value of people being different than you and realize that if everyone was the same, that that's not what God has envisioned for humanity. So that was kind of a long answer. (laughs) It was a great answer. It was a very good answer. So if someone's listening to us chat here today and they're like, okay, I want to have more conversations about race with the people in my world. How do you recommend that they get started? What kind of questions do you recommend that they ask? I think it kind of depends. One, it depends on how well you know someone, like really know someone. If you start asking these deep questions about race with people that you don't really know, um, that can be kind of off-putting and make people go on the defensive because a lot of Black people have experienced that white people don't really want to know. They want to either be firm in their own beliefs or their own thinking or they want to tear you down for your way of wow. thinking. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can see that. So I think first it's like building a relationship with someone. But if you do know someone well enough where you want to start asking those questions, I think asking about cultural things. Something I always say is like, in America, we have so many heritage months that like if you have a friend that is whatever cultural heritage ask them for a book that they should read about their culture. Like, Ooh, I like that. Yeah. That's a really easy thing to do. Ask them a book or ask them, ask them how they culturally identify. Even like white people can have this conversation with other white people of like, how do you culturally identify? Because it's not a conversation that happens in white spaces a lot about culture. The fact mm-hmm. that white people have a culture and it's different and there's things unique to that culture. Um, So I think just starting to ask those questions about like, what's one of your favorite things about your culture? What's something unique about your culture? What's something in your culture that's different than my culture? I think those are are really simple conversations that could start to have even deeper conversations. And then when you build that trust in that area of race, that's when you can actually start asking those deeper questions about like if it's a coworker asking them like, hey, do you feel safe in this workplace? Do you feel like you can actually speak up and your voice is heard? Do you feel like you have to be a certain person for the people here to like you? If it's a church, do you feel that there's a better way that we can honor God and honor your culture like here in this space? So I think it can be specific, but starting out with those general questions of like, getting to know that person and understanding that they're just one person and they can't speak for an entire people, but they do have a unique experience because of their culture, um, because of the color of their skin, because of how they identify. I like that. I think that the the relationship is key, but then slowly progressing it forward. And I think that's how this conversation started too. You wrote a blog. Um, I don't remember exactly what it was entitled, but it, it straight up addressed the race issue. And we were already friends before that, but we had never had this conversation before. And I asked some fumbly question and you like took it off the internet and 
into a private email and we emailed back and forth and that's where this conversation started. So thank you for educating me. That was several years ago now. Um, and you've been educating me ever since. So thank you for that. You, um, <laughs> you said to ask a friend if they've got like a book recommendation or something like that. Do you have resources that you recommend that people could read or maybe a podcast or a documentary or something? Oh man. Um, so there is a book called Beyond Colorblind by Sarah Shen. It's absolutely incredible. Would highly recommend it, especially if you're kind of new to this conversation and you're like, I'm interested in what it could look like for God to actually redeem culture. I would highly recommend that. Another one, another uh, documentary, it's called 13th. It's incredible, like 1-3-T-H. It's like two hours long, but it's basically about the history of how slavery led to Black mass incarceration. So a lot of people consider just a lot of the words that are use right now they call them kind of like buzzwords like mass incarceration or police brutality or all that kind of stuff but it's a like historical documentary about why people are saying that mass incarceration is actually a thing i'd highly recommend it it'll probably break your heart but some things are supposed to break your heart that is true i think that's how our hearts grow stronger is once they've been broken yeah. What have I not asked you that you're just itching to share with us? One thing I think that white people can be better at doing, especially in the church, is asking whose voice isn't being heard. Like, I think it's so easy for white people because many people grow up in white culture. They live in white culture for most of their life. They have limited interactions with minorities and they don't realize that, like, in their spaces that their perspectives missing. Mm. Uh, I think minorities grow up knowing that there are perspectives that are different than theirs because we're minorities, we're, yeah. <laughs> we're not the majority. Uh, so I think if white people in whatever their spaces are, whoever their friend groups are, whatever people they find themselves surrounded with and churches and the books they read, the movies they watch, um, asking like, what perspectives am I not getting? Am I watching movies or things that are only written by white writers? Is there something more that I want? Um, because I don't think in itself that it's necessarily a bad thing for like white people to be in white culture. I think it's bad when white people assume that white culture is the only culture. So I think it, if people start asking those questions, of saying like, is there a voice I'm missing? Is there a perspective I'm missing? Is there something that I'm not understanding because of the cultural narrative that I was raised in? Then I think America would be a better place because people would choose empathy before judgment. I love that. That's such a good (laughs) point. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I think that it's hard because I think we get so caught into I'm not going to finish that sentence because I was just going to make excuses of how we get caught in our own mindsets and we don't pay attention to what's missing. And that's just an excuse. It's a terrible excuse, but it's an excuse nevertheless. So I'm sorry for even just trying to make an excuse right now. (laughs) Uh, You're forgiven. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Is there anything I need to apologize for as a white friend to you? Maybe me personally, or maybe on the behalf of somebody else who was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. I don't know to me personally, but I can tell you that in my experience, um, when I was gone 
for 11 months at the the training camp I went to one of my white friends said to me like Haley like you you deserve to take up space like you can take up space and just like wanted to hear my voice um and did apologize like she's like on behalf of white people like I apologize Mm, for the way that we haven't listened for the way that we haven't heard you for the way that we haven't um like lifted you up and that meant more to me than I don't know than I could probably even put into words because I'd never had a white person like really do that before like Mm, mm -hmm. so I don't know not to me like there's nothing I see you need to apologize but there might be someone in your life who yeah he hasn't had that moment and um, I think there's a lot of black people who have never had that moment and will never have that moment. Mm-hmm. That's a good call out. I'm a little sad that your friend beat me to it, but I'm so blessed by the fact that it's happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where can we find you online? Online? Well, um, my Instagram is Haley Adara. That's H-A-L-E-Y-A-D-A-R-A. Um, okay. My blog currently is Haleylow.theworldrace.org. We'll link to those in the show notes as well. Yeah. Will you will you pray for us? Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> um, Lord, you are so good. Um, you're so kind. You're so loving. Lord, thank you so much for this conversation. God, I pray that there would be more like it. That across this nation, God, you seek to heal wounded hearts. Uh, You seek to unify your body. You seek to bring reconciliation, God. So I pray for hearts that are humbled um, and willing to apologize, God. And I pray for hearts that are willing to forgive. God, I pray for your wisdom, for your vision. And God, I thank you that we have this unique problem uh, where we have so many different people and cultures languages in our nation that we have to figure out how to live as a church and be unified that we have to figure out how to seek to be whole to lift one another up to seek empathy and understanding and ultimately to see each other as brothers and sisters first um, before we see anything else so lord i pray that you help us to see with the eyes that you that you have for each of us God, I pray that you help us to see skin color and culture and ethnicity and background and language the way that you see them as a beautiful representation of how your blood redeems everyone. (laughs) Lord, I'm so grateful to get to be part of your body. I'm so grateful for Katie. And Lord, I'm so grateful for what you plan on doing in your church Um, I thank you for people that have ears to hear. And God, I pray for those that don't, uh, that you would open their ears and soften their hearts. Um, Yeah, Lord, we love you. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. I was brought to tears while you were praying. And you were thanking God (laughs) for this beautiful problem that is multi-ethnicity and multiculturalism you thanked him for the gift to be able to come together and to learn how to be his body with so many different voices and I think that I'm so glad that you prayed for us because I think that that sums up 
you as a person is recognizing that, yes, there are problems, but you thank God for them. And you educate with such a beautiful humility and you've got a willingness to say, this is how I felt when you said that. And I know that's not what you meant, but let me just tell you what was going on for me because that's how you live and how you love him. And you're not afraid to speak up and say something and you're incredibly brave. And so I just want to thank you for your time today. This was absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you. I'm so glad that I got to do this. (laughs) Me too. It's kind of hard to know what to say right now. Just because my heart is in such a weird place. A couple days ago, the news broke that a black man who was going for a run ends up getting shot and killed by two white men who drove up in their truck with guns. That's just really angering and disheartening and upsetting. His name was Ahmad. He was 25. Um, And as I'm recording this right now, today would have been his 26th birthday, which to me, I think just hits even closer to home. He died a few months ago a few months from his 26th birthday, which is where I'm at right now, is my birthday is in a few months and I'm gonna be 26 and it's such an exciting time. It's such a sweet time because it's this this opportunity of growing older and getting into my upper 20s and all the dreams, all the things that I am excited for. For this last half of this decade, I know that this this guy that I don't know, but I know that he probably was excited for some of the same things. And it's been encouraging to see how many white people are willing to actually post about this and speak out about this and sign the petitions. But I think there's a bigger issue that people don't realize it. And that's that the men who chased down Ahmad They looked at him and they thought that he could be responsible for the burglaries that happened in their neighborhood. So they thought that they were justified in chasing him down with guns. That's the actual problem that these people thought these things and had these prejudices and that led to him being killed. And I can't help but think that there were some white people around these two men that maybe knew they held these views and maybe weren't so keen on them and I know that white people do this kind of thing all the time meaning that someone in their circle will say something very racist or prejudiced or whatever and that they won't say anything about it and I know this because white people have told me especially when it comes to older relatives but I think that if justice is really going to come to this country that part of the redemptive work of God and white culture is that white people are people who stand up for the vulnerable because in this situation, Ahmad was the vulnerable one. If people come at you with guns, you're in a vulnerable situation. So I think if white people keep in mind that God redeeming their culture is for them to take stands against the people who are perpetuating the thoughts and actions that facilitate injustice. I think that for white people, admitting 
to the darkest sins that you people in your culture have committed is actually the pathway to healing and the pathway to being the strong, courageous leaders um, that God is calling you to be. So lately I've been thinking about the adulterous woman, and I don't necessarily think the situation is the same, but she was someone in society being a woman who would have been vulnerable. There's a high chance she might have been poor, um, and the people who were going to stone her thought they were justified in doing so. Um, And Jesus confronts all these men that are like him, wielding weapons, like him meaning being of the same religious background, followers of the law, maybe upstanding citizens, um, hopefully, I don't know. But he confronts them and in a way that is so gentle and graceful, but also is so firm and steadfast. And what he says to them implores them to put down their weapons and to look at the things going on in their own lives. So I think for people in positions of power in society, this is actually the way to show the love of Jesus. And I think that for white people especially, confronting the pain and the hurts of black people, of brown people, of, I don't know, lots of different kinds of people, I think that's actually the beautiful thing that God is calling you to. Because in that, you get to be the person where when people are wielding weapons, they might not be like physical weapons, but they might be weapons of words. They might be weapons of perpetuating beliefs um, and systems that are unjust. You can be the one that calls them to put down their stones. You can be the one that calls them into greater things. You could be the one that calls them to be who God has created them to be. So I think there's an invitation in this to be the people that God has created you to be because I think that's it's a glorious thing and it's a redemptive thing and I actually think it'll bring redemption to a lot more people, not just white people. So I guess that's my challenge in light of Ahmad Arbery's death to not just be outraged about this one incident, but be outraged about the culture that has created it. consider content good when I have to sit with Jesus and reflect after I've finished. And I've got some reflection to do. And then I've got some conversations that I need to have. So thank you, Haley, for talking about a hard topic, for sharing your heart with us, and for opening our eyes to what it's going to look like to see God's kingdom come more fully today. It starts with me, and it starts with all of you. Have a good week, friends. We'll see you soon. (laughs) 